this past week, uh, as I was uh, preparing for this message, uh, I was just thinking through some different things um, that comes out of this passage. But I don't know if you ever thought about uh, people that you feel sorry for and people that you don't feel sorry for. Uh, people I don't feel sorry for, and maybe you you're probably would join me, but like somebody who wins a kajillion dollars, and, and then they say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with all that money. Yeah, I don't feel sorry for you at all. Uh, how about, um, I'm trying to think of somebody else. Oh, yeah, uh, you know, I don't feel sorry at all for the New England Patriots when they lost the Super Bowl. Nope, didn't feel anything for them. Kind of happy. Uh, how about when you see somebody in like a, a Lamborghini, you know, Ferrari, pulled over by the police, getting a speeding ticket? I don't feel sorry. I just feel a little bit of joy. Just so. You ever feel that? Yeah, you don't. You can confess that. That's between you and God. Um, there's, there's people that we, we just look at and go, look, I, I don't feel sorry. I don't even relate to you. Like, that's just a category that, I, you know, you're on your own. Sorry. N- nothing here for you. And then there's other people that you do feel sorry for and, and you connect with. And, and you know, I'm going to go for the easy one. It's just slow-hanging fruit. It's just like right, right there in front of all of us. It, you know, it, it's the Browns and the Browns fans, right? It's just so sad. And I remember when I moved here 15 years ago, I made a vow. I mean, some of you probably remember, I'll never become a Browns fan. And I don't know what happened to that vow because Doggone it, somewhere in there I became a Browns fan, and it's awful. It's horrible. I see a Browns fan, and I go, oh, this is horrible. Well, we got the draft. That's, that's what we say every year, right? We got the draft. That's all we look forward to. Um, you know, it's something about uh, there's a club that happens, right? You get in the club, and you can see someone. You don't even have to explain it. We're in. Like, I know what you're going through. I feel that because I'm in that same club. You ever go through something in life and all of a sudden you're in this club that you never wanted to be in, you never knew you signed up for, but all of a sudden you, you get to sit down with somebody and you speak literally the same language, the, la- the same heart language, the same soul language, right? How does that happen? You connect at a level with strangers that you shouldn't really have a connection with, but that's part of it. Something happens. The Greek word for this, actually in the original, way back in the day, the Greeks, I feel your pain, bro. I've been there. So, (laughs) the Greeks actually called this word sympatheo. We get our word sympathy from it. And it means literally to suffer with. Sympatheo. And what they would talk about is this idea that you have the ability, someone can have the ability of not even being in the club, but coming alongside of someone who is in a club, and it's not a fun club, right? And they're able to just sit down and to be with that person and to sympathize, to suffer with, because while they may not be in that club, they, they know suffering, and they know pain, or they know joy, and they can relate either way. And, and you ever been around people like that where they just somehow have an ability to just connect at a level that you shouldn't be able to connect at, and yet they can? And, and every human being is capable of that. As words go, 
what often happens is over the years, words change, culture hijacks words, and what a word can mean back to the Greeks gets changed over the years. And so it's happened here in America, this word sympathy, not so much that anymore. It's more like, aw, bless your heart, right? Oh, that's, that's just awful, but I don't have time to really care. I mean, that's, that's sympathy now. It's, it's way more surfacy, and our culture has hijacked that, and now there's a new word our, our culture has brought in that really is the old sympathy, and it's called empathy. I want you to watch this video about this, and you may be, some of you are going, Scott, where are you going? This is, this is like Easter resurrection. Just hang on, hang tight, it'll all make, well, hopefully it all makes sense here in a few minutes here. But check out this video. It's got a real cheesy little uh, intro thing, and then, I, you know, I want to give credit to where credit's due. So watch the whole thing, and it's Brene Brown talking about the difference between sympathy and empathy. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective-taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So why do I share that? 
um, as we go through this, I'm going to try to just reclaim that word sympathy because it's just easier and it fits with this passage. I'm going to reclaim the original meaning of it back in the Greek. Is that okay? So when I use it, I know with this video and it's whatever, but that's what I'm going to do. So why do I, I play this clip? Let me read to you a passage out of Hebrews chapter 4. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Here's the verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. In time of need. This video is literally a description of what Jesus did. Not only came down from heaven, but came down into that hole. Now let me explain this first, because it's it's maybe a little bit fuzzy if you're not familiar necessarily with, you know, history of Israel and, and, and the priesthood and everything. So God came to Moses, gave him the Ten Commandments, and gave him a structure to help people organize on, on how to worship him. And so he established the priesthood, and there was a high priest over all of them. And the high priest got to go one time a year into the presence of God, only once, one time a year. And he would offer an offering to God, and it would be this, you know, kind of this whole reconciliation thing. God, if we've messed up as a nation, please accept this offering. We want a restored relationship, that kind of deal. That was the essence of it. He had to go through all kinds of purification rites unless he wanted to get, um, unless he wanted to have God smite him, as it were, right? So he had all the, the shiny, fancy clothes on. He had to do all this process up in front of that, before that, just to get ready for that day. And, and What's interesting is you read through Hebrews and it talks about that high priest was weak. Well, why was he weak? Well, he was weak because he was human, right? Part of this broken world. And so his, his body, his mind, his heart, his emotions, his spirit, all of it was just human for one person. And what became clear is that no one could get access to God except one time a year through this guy who was weak, no matter how fancy the clothes and great the title was. Only one person could get to God one time a year, and it was incredibly difficult even to have that happen. And from God's perspective, it was obvious that humanity, if left to itself, would never, ever be able to reach God. It's as if we were in a hole and there was no ladder. There was no way to get out of the hole. Humanity needed a savior, someone who was truly human, and yet also someone who was effectively, essentially, truly God. Because only God could bridge a gap like that. You needed somebody who was all-powerful, somebody who was eternal, like could spread whatever he was going to spread, could affect everyone in all human history. And just a normal person like you and me couldn't be that. Enter Jesus, 
fully God, the Bible says, who set aside his throne and rights to authority and power to come here to become one of us, fully human. Didn't stop being God, just set aside the exercise of that. And when that bear, you know, in that video, walked down into the hole, that's Christ, came down into that hole, saying, you know, he, actually, he wasn't up at the top saying, wow, it stinks to be you guys, you know, eating a sandwich, looking down, going, well, good luck. He came down, he, he lived, he walked on this earth. And, and so when you see this verse, like he came and he's not unable to sympathize, to suffer along with our weaknesses, but one and who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he understands that whole idea of suffering that comes from temptation and, and all that surrounds that. But that's not the only thing he's able to identify with us. He understands when somebody has lost a loved one and the grief that comes with that. He understands what it means to be abandoned. He understands what it means to be homeless. He understands what it means to be weak. He understands what it means to go without food and how shaky you get. He knows all those things. He knows what it means to be rejected by friends. He knows what physical pain is, emotional pain. He, he knows all of that. Truly, in the, in the best sense of the word, the original sense of the word sympathy, he suffered along with us. And the implication of this verse is that Jesus knows what you have gone through and what you're going through right now. And he doesn't just know. He's not up there saying at least, trying to paint a silver cloud. He may not have suffered specifically what you've suffered, but he knows suffering and he has been and is and will always be right there in the middle of us and what we're going through. And one of the things I like about what Brene said is that that authentic, you know, understanding of what the original word sympathy means or empathy as she calls it now is that it stays out of judgment and some of you may be thinking well how is that possible with God because I've heard people talk about God and that you know there's a judgment day coming and everybody faces a judgment and there's sin and and so he's making a judgment saying something's good and something's wrong and and people talk about hell I've heard that at church and I've heard that in the Bible or read that myself so how do you say he stays out of judgment well those things are are, are true and yet there's something else that is also on the table when Jesus came to earth he said this multiple times, and it extends even as he was raised from the dead and is in heaven. And he said, I've not come to judge. I haven't come to judge. I've come to save. I've come to heal. This is not the time to judge. This is the time to save. There was a few moments where he did judge, and it was the, the religious people who were going around saying, God, why don't you judge them all? And he was so fed up with that because they were so far from the heart of God. So far. 
No, every circumstance you would find him in with, with people who, who didn't know who God was, didn't have a relationship, their life was chaotic and a mess, he would always invite them in. Always bring them into relationship with them. So much so that people said he was a friend of sinners. He didn't call that himself. That's what everybody else called him. That's what he was known for. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. He saw the hole that we were in, the pit that we were in. And he came down and he says, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to heal. I'm here to bind up wounds. I'm here to save people who are lost. Bible says he actually came to love us even when we didn't love him and even hated him. Are you right now in that hole or trying to get out of that hole? And I don't know what that is. You feel alone. You've got a past you can't escape. You feel like everybody else in this room deserves to be here, but not you. You're not worthy. You're not good enough. You've, you, people really knew who you were and how much you've done and what you've done. God can't love you. I just want you to hear he's in that hole with you. He knows the mess that you're in. He's already climbed down. He's, he's already there. He's been there all along right next to you. And if you stop and just listen, you'll hear him say, I know. I know all of it. I know how hard it is. I know how real it is. I know how terrible it is. And I want you to know something. I love you. I love you. I've asked uh, Kathleen Zimmerman to come up. She's been a part of our church for a number of years to share her story and how she encountered God. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Ah, God's good. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a little story, if you're okay with that. <clears throat> so long time ago, long, long time ago, one Wednesday evening, as I sat in the pew of our little church, I felt something I had never felt before. Deep within my heart, I was nine years old, but my heart was pounding out of my chest. And in my mind, I know I heard, yes, you. As if answering my silent question, does that mean me? Little did I know that that walk down the aisle and my baptism and the one who was speaking the yes you into my spirit was the strength I would need to get through what was immediately in front of me. But then also <laughs> the strength that I would need ultimately that would also lead me to freedom 30 years later. A few short years after the 
night I felt God ask me to say yes to Jesus, my childlike faith was put to the test. I was confronted with the discovery that my earthly father wasn't the man that he portrayed to the world. He hurt me and others in unspeakable ways. Nor was he a man I could ever feel safe with again. In fact, his presence brought fear. That wound I experienced not only brought fear, but it brought a number of lies. The lie that I had to protect myself. The lie that I had done something to provoke it. Even the lie that I was not lovable by anyone ever again. Those are the lies that blossomed throughout my teenage years and into my adulthood. I had moments of clarity with the Lord and feeling him touch my spirit throughout my life, but the lies were so loud and the hurt buried so deep, I couldn't quite stay there. I made the age-old mistake of making decisions for myself because I thought I knew what was best for me right? Mm -mm. Making decisions for myself ended up being a cycle of abusive relationships. All very different, but all very real. One was physical abuse with a partner who, unbeknownst to me, was homosexual and with my male counterpart on a regular basis. One was passive-aggressive with various levels of abuse, and, and the third who displayed 16 out of 20 areas of abuse, who was also in an affair the majority of the time that we were together. With each additional bad relationship, the lies piled on. The lie that there must be something wrong with me that I can't keep my husband happy. The lie that I must not have tried hard enough, so let me try this and this. That I, the lie that I must have to change something about myself. It even became worse when I finally got the courage to leave a 17-year marriage I was rejected by my church, and I was told, you're not saved. <laughs> oh, boy. Here came a whole new level of information into this little brain. You know, that big D word. That's right, divorce. I said it. <laughs> and the lie. The lie that this is the one thing God can't forgive you for. <laughs> and the lie God doesn't love you anymore. And yet another lie, you might as well do whatever you want to do. Your fate is sealed anyway. Unfortunately, I believed them all. <laughs> the church who abandoned me in my time of need and the lies. So I followed through with doing what I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted. I even got pregnant out of wedlock and I thought he was 
everything he should be as a man. But something deep within me didn't want to disappoint God yet again. So I married him. Well, then everything changed. (laughs) That man, he took control with a vengeance. And his true character was revealed. He was that third man I mentioned earlier who displayed 16 out of 20 areas of abuse toward me. I found myself feeling like that 12-year-old little girl again. What had I done? There were moments I felt as if I was seriously losing my mind. Like my memory and my perspective of the situation was completely wrong. Like I was being punished for all of my past bad decisions and sins. Like there was absolutely nothing I could do to fix this. But then something broke. One cold November evening, as I hid outside, huddled down on the ground behind a bush, curled in a ball, sobbing like a baby, I asked one little question of someone I thought wasn't even listening anymore. Can you fix this? (laughs) He gently wrapped me in warmth, and he let me cry it out. And then he set to work fixing it. The moment I entrusted my situation and my heart with him and not myself, or the man I thought was the end-all to (laughs) be-all, there he was. (laughs) This gentle, loving, forgiving, constantly the same, never leaving me, Father, that I sought in all of the wrong places, but was there with me, the entire time over the last 30 years, right beside me. Now, I wish I could tell you that it was all fixed in the snap of a finger. It wasn't. God had 30 years of pain, distrust, and disobedience to sort through with me. But the first order of business was my marriage on the rocks. In the last counseling session, When everything came to a head, I clearly remember feeling as if I was in a bubble. That meeting became very heated, yet I had no fear. I truly experienced the peace that passes all understanding. And I clearly heard my Lord whisper in my ear, I will never leave you or forsake you. Not just once, but three times. After two years of fighting for my marriage because I feared failing God yet again, he sent me a dream. And he made it clear that it was time for me to let go and allow Jesus to carry me through the grief and the brokenness and, yes, yet another divorce. And oh yes, those same old lies 
started pouring in. But you know what's really cool? The truth was louder this time. Every time a lie came at me, I saw truth, and there it was. The Bible is the truth, and the Lord speaks to us every day through it. He spoke to me through these wonderful, loving, sweet family at Freshwater, too. The Bible tells me, and I remind myself frequently, almost daily, of the truth. The truth that I am forgiven. The truth that I am loved. The truth that I am accepted. The truth that I am chosen. He chose me. He pursued me. The truth that I am secure. The truth that I am significant. (laughs) The truth that I am a child of God. (laughs) A verse I cling to, even to this day, is in Isaiah 54, 5. For my maker is my husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is my redeemer. After 30 years of abuse and bad choices, my husband, God Almighty, and my redeemer, he gave me healing, and he set me free from the bondage of the lies and the sin in my life. Praise God. (laughs) Best of all, he walks with me and talks with me every day. I can't go a day without being in his presence. I'm in a committed, loving relationship with the only one for me. Now, you may ask, why her? (laughs) Just as I did one morning in my kitchen as I was thanking him for yet another time that he blessed me. His answer to my silent question, just as clear as me standing here speaking to you right now, I love you. I love you. Brene says something. She says, rarely can a response change anything. Rarely can a response make something better. It is so true. If you've ever had somebody come into your life or you've come alongside somebody else with that, that Greek sympathy, right, to suffer with, you wish you could say the right thing. You wish you had that right sentence that could completely take all of it away. And you wish somebody else would have that for you. And that's what's so frustrating about us and being human and weak is we can't make a response, come up with a response that will make it better. But that's not true for Jesus. 
And that's the difference here, is we have, we have someone who not only sympathizes with us, who suffers with us, but he can also do something about it. And what happened when he sympathized with us? It was so deep. He, he, he experienced not just the stuff, the suffering and all the pain and everything about the world, but he actually went on and willingly chose to suffer, take on the judgment that each of us faced. And he suffered that literally. And what do I mean by that? Well, God has this righteous standard, right? So if we violate that, there's a punishment. Somebody's got to you know, pay for that. There's a penalty, and the problem is the only penalty that will suffice is death, our death, because that's what it requires. He's so holy. The problem is if we are in this hole, which every person is, is in that same hole facing that kind of death, the problem is if we play that penalty, we'll never get out of the hole. We'll just die in that hole and never know a different life. And Christ comes and he says, no, I will take that penalty. I will stand in your place as your substitute. So it's not only, it, it's, it's a complete taking on of our death sentence. And he took all of it. He took all of yours. He took all of mine, all the judgment, all the penalty on himself and died for it. Literally sympathy in the truest form of the word to suffer along with and then it goes beyond that and the bible says three days after he was buried and this is what we were talking about today this resurrection this is what easter is about god the father raised him from the dead and his resurrection and ascension back into heaven to his throne his and and, and now his rightful place on that throne it is this guarantee that no pit is too deep no hole too big and dark for him it's a recognition that his sacrifice truly was enough for all of us it could stretch through eternity past and into the eternity future it could cover every single human throughout history different kind of high priest and it means now his resurrection is is everything because with it came the power over sin we sang that song you know where death is your victory where is sin right all that stuff christ has beaten it destroyed it the resurrection is what we celebrate because it guarantees that not only does he come along and sympathize with us but he can do something about it He'll save you and he'll save me. And, and I love this. When you look at this passage, there's another part of this verse we haven't talked about. Let us then draw with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in, in time and what is that? To help in time of need. I, I like this first part because when you think about it, God, Jesus goes up to the heaven and he names his throne grace. The name of his throne is grace. I don't know if that ever crossed your mind. You ever name a chair? I've never named a chair. You ever name a chair? I mean, we got the throne, but I don't know. As we all know it. That's about the only one, right? Who names chairs? I love that he goes up to heaven, and I, I just, I, I wonder what that scene looks like where he comes up, and he looks at that, and he says, this is the throne 
of grace. I'm naming this throne grace. If you know the throne is grace, does it change the way you approach him? Like if you know the essence of him when he is reigning is, is grace, the seat, grace. The seat is mercy coming out of it. He's ascended into heaven and he's not angry. He's not wanting revenge. He's not, he came to take our punishment and he's ascended into heaven because he's loving and he wants to give grace. He's saying up there, so who wants some grace? Anybody need some grace? Anybody wants some mercy? And the other part of this verse is that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's, there's an assumed part of this is that you have to know that you're in need. You have to be aware of that. And God, in his grace, even moves us to a point where we can acknowledge that. But there's a point in our lives where we have to say, I need grace. I need love. I need him. And you have to ask for that. Probably the greatest story of someone rescuing somebody else in the history of the world. He's the greatest rescuer ever because he comes down into that hole and he, he sits there and he's like, I know. And then he also says, and I can get you out. Just like Kathleen's story, so many of our stories today. How many of us have had stories where God has pulled us out of that place? rescued us how many of us have a story where he's rescued us out of a hole only to find that we go back to that same hole and fall into it again and he comes alongside and he doesn't stand there up on top with the sandwich going no he comes down and he pulls us out again when you think through all the stories in the bible jesus told about himself He's, he's the, right, he's the, the, the God, the, the father who has a son who's the prodigal son, and he's waiting out there for the son to come back. That's Jesus from the throne of grace, waiting to embrace his son. He's, right, he's this poor woman who lost her coin and couldn't afford to lose it. She turns the house upside down just to find the coin. And then throws a party when she finds it. And he's, he said he's like this shepherd who has 100 sheep, 99 are home, but he's got one out in the storm. It's late at night and it's in danger and he leaves the 99 to go find and rescue the one. That's Jesus. And he has the power to do that through the resurrection. I don't know whether you've ever connected the dots in all of this. And maybe you're sitting there going, I, what does this look like? How does this work? And, and Christ's invitation to us is just simple. It is to believe this, to, to take that step of faith where you, you literally say, okay, I'm, I'm in. I, I choose to believe this. I need grace. I need grace. And receive that grace, forgiveness. And, and the there's two sides to that coin. One side is that step of faith and belief. The other side is a, at the same time is to say, uh, I surrender my life. I give control. 
you're the Lord, you're the boss, however you want to say it, you're, you, you control it. Clearly, I can't. My life's out of control when I'm in charge. I need you here on out to call the shots. Only you know whether you can mean that or not. And we're going to sing a song. It, it's a song about how God rescues us. And, and it's going to kind of feel like, wow, all of a sudden we just go into this. And you may want to hold on to your hair, hair a little bit um, as we get into that song. But I would encourage you, don't walk out today without making that decision. Make that decision. Take that step of faith. And some of you who, who may be in this pit, and you made that decision, you do believe God, but you're all of a sudden in this pit and again, just say, God, can I have some more grace? Can you rescue me again? And he will. He's that kind of God. And we're going to sing several songs here at the end. Um, and at the end of the service, there, there's people up here that would love to pray for you if you, if you need prayer. Love to just spend some time.